Hi there, this is Michael F. Schein. I am the author of The Hype Handbook, published by McGraw-Hill, and the founder and president of Microfame Media. Today on the show, we are going to talk about the connection between Hitler and Harvard, why every good movement needs an enemy, why there's actually no such thing as true morality, and what George W. Bush and Margaret Thatcher taught us about unifying a nation by using hype. Welcome back to this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. Remember, you can join in this conversation over on Facebook by going to the Curiosity Bites page in what, the group that we have in there. By the way, this episode is brought to you by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign go to music and mental health research initiatives. You can find out more about Awesome Music Project or the awesome, beautiful coffee table book, The Awesome Music Project, um, in the usual places, the book features stories by amazing people like astronaut Chris Hatfield, um, artists like Michael Bublé, Sarah McLaughlin, and they even let me get in there too. So it's you can find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the Awesome Music Project Foundation or AMP Foundation by going to www.theawesomemusicproject.com. All right. Welcome back to this delicious convo with my guest, Michael F. Shine. He is someone who is curious about everything from propaganda to cults, from the punk movement to cognitive science, and him and I have many interests in common, and all of his sort of interests have culminated together in this outstanding book called The Hype Handbook. The Hype Handbook is, there it is, 12 indispensable success secrets from the world's greatest propagandists, self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary breakers. So let's get back into it here. Thanks for coming back. And thank you for clicking through. Let's jump in a little bit more because we were sort of talking about um, how hype has been, hype is neutral. It can be used very positively. It can be used very negatively. Um, and Michael was talking about a book from, uh, what do you say? It was the early, early 20th century? Gustav Laban. Yeah, the late uh, 19th century, actually, yeah. Oh, really? Eight, yeah. Really? 1895. Really old. Yeah. 1895. Wow. It's what a great it book. It's called The Crowd by Gustav Laban. It's really, really good and relatively readable. Although you have to be a little bit, um, there are a few racial, like he'll, he'll group people in terms of their race rather than their culture. What he really <laughs> means is culture, but it's like the racial characteristics. You have to, sure. you have to overlook that stuff. It's very old, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, but let's, let's, let's just look at this as, um, for a minute, because I want to look at hype as a political force. Yeah. Um, now, you know, we ended up in the end of the last one talking about Donald Trump, but it's a, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing. We could certainly go to Trump and I, and I'm happy to go there, but it's also, again, people want to see it on the other side, but they don't see it on their side. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the, the, um, political correct movement to me is a hype movement i agree right yeah. um uh, the, the woke movement as they call the it woke now, movement. Right? yeah that, yeah exactly the whole yeah. Woke movement is a, is a is a hype movement as much as you know um QAnon or any of the other things so those say i wanted to have everybody understand that you're on one side of that picture looking at the other side and going those bastards are so stupid because they're following this idiot or idiots. And on this side, they're looking over at that side going, you idiots, you can't even see this. 
it seems to me that some good signs of whether people are measuring issues and thinking about issues rationally, or at least trying to, or whether they've just been sort of brought into hype, you know, have, have been hyped into believing something is the tone of how people talk about things. So when I, when I see people like frothing at the mouth and using really hyperbolic language, which is where the word hype comes yeah, from, um, or when they believe every single thing that their side believes, which many of the points don't even make sense with no. one another, yeah. or if they use every opportunity to tell you about their politics, I can't help but believing that the, the reasons for their beliefs come from messages they've been receiving that are tribal in nature, which is, right. is hype. So like, um, I've been, you know, I'll just be frank. I mean, I'm a Democrat, you know, a registered Democrat. I did not like Donald Trump at all. I thought he was bad for the country. However, I guess you would say I'm moderate only because I try to think of every issue separately and I'm not perfect, but I, I, I try and I try to assess things. I'll often be talking to people and it's, it's kind of like before you can even get into a conversation and let's talk about the woke kind of left because we've sure. already talked about Trump. There's all this, you know, what was the word you used? Mm -hmm. Did you say that word? or a lot of anger if you don't you know yeah. agree or words like revolution and oh you know upturning and wiping away and you know and i feel like though that kind of frothing at the mouth parroting of ideas is when i start to say do you really believe what you believe or are you swept up in these mass psychology forces and i don't want to paint everyone with the same brush no, but it gives not. me pause when i hear that kind of language but it's such a powerful mechanism and it yeah. is completely neutral and can be used by anybody and and is used very well and very effectively right. as a political leverage point i mean you know if you know we can talk about Donald Trump, we can talk about the woke movement, but people forget. I mean, it's one of the things I'm fascinated about with Americans. Um, I've been studying Americans since I was a kid because I fell in love with the idea of the American dream. And the thing I'm fascinated about Americans is this mass hypnosis around the American dream. Yeah, really. Um, and yeah. that doesn't bother to examine anything beyond it's a that. religion. And so, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. It's a religion. And part of that religion becomes, uh, really uh neoliberal economics which has become uh, it's got nothing to do with capitalism and everything to do with greed it's um, not capitalism it's it's corporate communism i call exactly. it the idea yeah. that like yep, the market exactly. will bear out but the markets can't be allowed to fail that doesn't make sense that's not no, capitalism. exactly so yeah. it's, it's a very much a uh like people don't un understand that. And I understand that people don't understand it because they don't understand the things I understand about hype or, or about psychology, about cult psychology or collective yeah. psychology. Yeah, okay. Uh, but, and they don't understand the economics, but just for a moment, how is, like it's fascinating to me how people will vote against their own best interests. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and whether I'm talking about literally putting a ballot in or I'm talking about the overthrow in Russia. Now I get that they, the Tsar and Tsarina were a bunch of, you know, not very good people doing some horrible things, but you 
took in somebody who murdered hundreds of millions of your own people yeah, yeah. And, and cheered for it. And yeah. they did the same in China under Mao, yeah. you know, even more people. But we, of course, we remember Hitler because as one of the great comedians said, how did Hitler make it to the personification of evil when he only murdered this many? Oh, yeah. I Whereas, saw it. Yeah. <laughs> which, was, one, I which one was that? I forget. I can't yeah. remember, but it was so good. Yeah. It's like, you know, wow, that was, you know, why, why aren't you saying, wow, that was yeah. very Mao? Like, you know, right. Well, new, right. <laughs> but it's that same thing. Again, even 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 in the judging of a group. So the there's a hype around Hitler. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. a hype around that. So again, it's hype can be used in a, in a particular direction. It doesn't really matter. It's, and it's just these simple rules. And the interesting thing about it that you just brought up that I'm fascinated with is something I've been studying for a long, long time. Uh, and I talked about it with Howard Bloom, who is the guy behind. Oh, yeah. Right. I talked about He's it on this guy. show, actually. Yeah. We talked about it uh, behind Michael Jackson and all these different groups, which is this idea of mass ecstasy mass it's not just a hysteria but it's an ecstatic state and you know it, when i watched those um <laughs> what were nicknamed uh, super spreader events with donald trump yeah. during covid with thousands of people around him and 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 listen to it and the language patterns now this this is where you and i are going to get a little bit deeper because because of our both of us studying uh, cult psychology is there's a language pattern. I talked about it in um, decoding Trump, which is the language pattern is to find a three, uh, a two, three, four, or even five, but no more than that word combination that is repeated three times in, in sequence. Right. And then ramble so that people's minds disengaged and then repeat the cycle. So if you go back and watch the early uh, presentations of Trump and you watch even the, the, uh, I can't remember, the rallies that he did, you will hear him talking about just random crap. Yeah. People just like, you know, I have to flush my toilet 15 times. And people are like, hey, right. you know, they, they zone out. Even his fans will zone out. That's the purpose of it. See, he's brilliant at it. And I don't think he knows it. I he think doesn't he knows know he's it. Good at it, but he doesn't know what he's doing. So but he so is. It yeah, no, go on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's but just I'm like excited. he has yeah. a um, an almost, almost insane level of talent at it. So he rambles on about shit that nobody cares about. They zone out, and then he says, "Lock her up," right? You know, he says a three line sequence, and then he says it again. And by the t third time, they join in. Now their brain is only taking in that it's bypassed everything yeah, that is cognitive. It. Then he goes back into the ramble. Once he goes back into the ramble, they zone out again until there's the next hype call. That's a hundred percent. I mean, that's very um, the way you phrased it is 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 really insightful. So, and I have so much to say about this. It's going to sound like I'm rambling. So hone me back. But um, you know, two things. I, you know, we talked about Wing Chun before the martial art, and and I was reading a book on Wing Chun, uh, the Tao of Wing Chun, and or Tao of Wing Wing Chun. And the guy who wrote the book was saying, most likely the way martial arts started is that there were people in a community who were just really good fighters. They were the best fighters in the community. And people would observe them and say, hey, teach me how to fight. And, and then they would pass on their skills to the next person. And then the best person of that would pass it on. So it was like, so there are people like Donald Trump. I don't believe there was some story that he read Hitler's speeches. I don't believe that that's true. I think that he 
there not have sure always he's all, not sure he's read the back of the conflict box. I, I think I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I just think there have always been a small segment of people who are kind of like the equivalent of those natural fighters who just do this very yeah. very naturally. They happen to usually, on balance, be bad people because being a sociopath or a psychopath or a narcissist is a benefit, not because the tactics are bad, but because they've done research that if if a, if someone with antisocial personality disorder, which is what these things are, gets into an interpersonal um, situation that's stressful, their heart rate won't go up. So as a result, they do a very good job seeing human beings as chess pieces instead of letting their emotions get in the way. And most of us let our emotions so, get in the way. So the trick for the rest of us is to become martial artists. We need to study what these mm. naturals do yeah. and, and, and reapply it for good, the way you might reapply a martial art you know, for good. So, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. And then the next thing I wanted to say is there was a story in the book that McGraw my editor at McGraw-Hill rightly encouraged me to cut, you know, and I did. And she, it was the right decision, but it's a great story for this purpose. Sure. And it's about, it's about the Nazis and it's technically a business book. So the Nazi stuff didn't really, didn't really work, but there, there's, there's, um, there was this guy, I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly. It's like Ernst Hamstengel or something. And he, um, he's German. And in the, uh, I guess the early twenties or teens, he went to the U S and extension and went, to Harvard uh, for a semester or a year or something. And he got into the student life there and he discovered American football, which was a college sport at the time. And no one knew in the rest of the world what right. it was. And he was a piano player. So he played the piano or the organ or whatever at, at the games. And he noticed that at the games, everyone would yell, fight, Harvard, fight, Harvard, fight, fight, fight. And these like normally stayed bow tie wearing Harvard people would get whipped up into like a frenzy and they would just totally unify and they were, it was like bloodlust. So years later, he came back to Germany and um, Hitler was just like speaking in beer halls and stuff. And this guy got into it and he discovered Hitler and became one of his first confidants. And as the movement started to grow, they were hanging out one day and, and, and Hitler was like, well, we need something to get the crowds more worked up. We're getting... And he said, you know, I remember when I was at Harvard, they would do this thing, this, this repetitious, repetitive phrase. And, and Hitler got so excited and started like walking around the room. And that's how they came up with Sig, Heil, Sig, Heil, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. So that just shows you like the same kind of soundbitey phrase, repetition and all of that that can be used to get you worked up at a football game, which is a totally benign thing, can be used to get crowds worked up at a, at a Nazi rally. It's, it, I just found that so fascinating. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I grew up in the UK, hence the music background. Yeah. Um, and um, as a kid, my uncle took me to see Man City. You know, I would go oh, to yeah. the football matches, the soccer games. And I would watch Man City and, you know, we were always afraid to go to a certain area or walk in because there were, you know, quote, soccer hooligans. Right. But that was, you could walk into the game and it was fine. It was walking out of the game. It wasn't point. fine. It's a because great point. who walked into the game were people. Individuals. Who walked out of yeah. the game was zealots. Uh, and a mob. It, yeah, it wasn't with, individuals. They were, they were zealots yeah. in a, with a mob mentality. Yeah. Why? Because it was, um, you know, uh, 
Liverpool, we love you. You know, it was like they were singing like Liverpool, we love you, right? You know, to the terrorist chants, right? They right? do those. There yeah. were the chants, right? And you would yeah. have those chants, right? And so those chants would make the, the brought us into the othering. So that's the piece I want to go into now. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things you've done <clears throat> beautifully in the book, you talked about, as I said, I train people to become speakers. And one of the things in training people to become speakers, I say, you have to know who the enemy is. That's it. You've yeah. got to know who the enemy is and you have to go after the enemy. The enemy doesn't have to be a person. It can be, but it can be an idea. It can That's be right. a, a mentality. And if you want to understand it, you, it's very simple today to understand because all you do is turn on Fox and they'll talk about how the woke movement is the enemy. Yeah. And if you turn on uh, MSNBC, you'll hear how the Trumpers are the enemy, yeah, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and in between, you've got normal human beings who are Republicans, um, who think this whole thing is crazy, and who are Democrats who think this whole thing is crazy, right? Then they're, they're not those groups. That's right. But it's that same thing that the enemy makes for, as you were saying before, that I don't need to think anymore. I'm just going with this. And if you are, if you're with us, because it becomes, and, and, I, and I nailed this down. I said, the person who started this the most effectively was the guy we all labeled as a dumbass president, George W. Bush, yeah. who said, you're either with us or you're against us. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I forgot about world. that. That's a great, that, that's, that's very true. You know, we, we forgot how... Um, zealous he was in the light Absolutely. of what came next but yeah he was he was you know because he, he was, was kind there. of a doofus right yeah, exactly. he was kind of like he was kind of it was kind of laughable right but you know of course you know there was there was the great dick who was pulling his strings that's literally his name dick literally yeah, <laughs> but I he know. was pulling his strings <laughs> yeah. and halliburton you know and and all the 100 percent, yeah all of the uh the mass uh, industrial complex, the yeah. military industrial complex. But inside of that is that, you know, this call to the world, you are either with us or you're against us, which was the really the personification of the dark side of this American dream, this idea that we are clean and pure yeah. and people bought it. Yeah. And, and I talked about this with, um, when you think about, cause again, I was around, Margaret Thatcher. Some of us are old enough. You will remember Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was the longest serving prime minister in the United Kingdom. She was hated. So how was she hated and be the longest serving prime minister? Because she was hated. So therefore, the people on her side were zealot. They didn't think about it. She was best friends with Ronnie. She believed mm -hmm. in trickle down economics. And then on top of that, when she was about to be ousted, they went to war in the Falkland Islands, yeah, which was seven rocks and four sheep. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, and once it was you irrelevant. get that war mentality, yeah. everything right. goes out of the window. So she got elected again, and she managed to stay even longer when nobody wanted her there. When the unions, when our friend Paul Weller was performing, uh, take yeah. her out. And the British, it's funny. From what I understand, I was I was a relatively little kid when she was in power, but um. I remember her being in power, but looking back on the history, from what I understand, the English and the British got really into that Falkland Islands war. It was like the first Gulf War. It was like re people really rallied around that. And it was really, there was nothing to, I mean, it, like you said, it was this small 
holding off the coast of Argentina that had no strategic value to anybody. It was a pride thing. Yeah, it, and but it, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was a pride thing. I think I really believe it was the use of hype to manipulate a nation to bring people under their thumbs. Yeah, yeah, it was a pride thing for the British. I don't mean for she knew it. Oh exactly. yeah, absolutely for the British. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I for was, the Argentinians, really. I and lived the, in Australia yeah. at the time. I'd already moved. Um, I'd already lived in Canada, and I uh, spent some time in Asia, and I was in, in Australia, and. For those of you who don't know, my original career was in hairdressing. And I was a hairdresser working with a bunch of fairy hairdressers. I know you can't say that stuff, but you know, we were all very artsy, fartsy, creative. Sure you know, we were your, all they were probably good friends of yours. You probably they probably called themselves that, you know. That's yeah. exactly what they called themselves, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. They were all my mates. Yeah. Um, you know, and we all dressed weird and wonderful and we were all into it. And I remember standing next to this guy, Jeff, who was wearing a long chiffon scarf saying, I think I'm going to go back. Like he hated the UK, talked about how he hated the UK, talked about how he loved Australia. And he said, I think I'm going to go back. And I said, why? And he goes, I think I'm going to volunteer. And I'm like, for what? And that, that inbred, we were all born with it, like inbred, your tribe, this is your tribe. Not only were we born with it, I talk about this in the book, I did some really, I found some really interesting stuff on this in, in my research. So an anthropologist had like a find of the century not so long ago. He found this alcove off the coast of South Africa that for various reasons, um, all evidence points to the fact that every human being on earth is descended from the people in this alcove. So basically there was a big climate change event that wiped out most of Homo sapiens, you know? And this one, you know, the plains dried up where we yeah. roamed around. And um, all evidence suggests that a small group of our ancestors in Africa came to this little alcove that was on the sea. And there was an area where shellfish was abundant, like oysters and, and, and whatnot. Mm. And the good thing about shellfish is that they're very high calorie, they're very nutritious, and they're easy to get. You know, you don't have to do a mammoth hunt. So basically, it was kind of like this Garden of Eden. And the only thing keeping human beings from this shellfish were other human beings. So it's worth noting that these people were all genetically and racially identical, but they very quickly or so the strongly supported hypothesis goes, because no one was there, but they very quickly formed tribes where they perceived themselves to be different. So why? The people who survived were those people who could, who could cooperate extremely well with people they perceived to be like them to survive to harvest this food yeah. and simultaneously hate and drive out those they perceive not to be like them because it can only feed a certain group of people so this is and this spread through the whole population and if you think that this is just like legend or not legend but that it's not biological oxytocin, which is the chemical, the brain chemical that is most famous for the fact that it's, you know, secreted during breastfeeding and bonds a mother to her child. It's also secreted during orgasms, you know, and, and, it, and it causes bonding between lovers. Um, that same chemical also makes us, it's the racism chemical. It makes it's us exactly. hate people not like us. So what does that mean other than what you're saying? First of all, there's no getting around this. Every human on earth, the most hippy dippy person in the world hates people who aren't hippies, right? I mean, you know, like, so it's, but 
what's interesting about this is you can either say, well, that sucks. I don't want any part of this because it's a horrible trait and it's caused some of the worst ills in history. However, it can be really used um, in a positive way. So, so let's use a business example because so often we use these pop culture references. Basecamp, which is this project management tool. There were a million project management tools out there. Some were huge like uh, Salesforce. And this was this scrappy little project management tool. And the thing with project management tools is until recently, the, the MO for that industry is to build as many functions in as possible. Whenever a client has you build a function and you build it in and then roll it out to everyone because who wouldn't want something that did more stuff? And what Basecamp said is, you know, a lot of people are overwhelmed. Let's create a simple project management tool that only allows for five things. Now, what they could have done is gone out and advertised, hey, it's a project management tool that's simple to use. They didn't do that. These guys wrote a book called Rework that basically said corporate culture is ass backwards, basically. They basically said, fire your workaholics, overwork is ridiculous, overcomplexity is ridiculous. If you talk, and, and by the way, we have a tool that helps you solve this. If you talk to people who buy Basecamp, it's not like, oh, you know, I use Salesforce because I, it's good. They're like a fanatical, people love this tool. They would wear t-shirts with this tool. So picking that fight is just, no matter what you do, is, is just, if, if you could take no other hype strategy out of the book, like that's, that's essential. And, and I want to, as we sort of come to the end of this part, I, one of the things that I sort of banged up against all the time in teaching um, speakers was I don't want to pick an enemy. I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy. Um, who picks yeah, right, right. That's it. Right. I don't right. want to find an enemy. How do you help people? Let, let's talk about this from your professional point of view. How do you help people to understand how to pick an enemy? Um, and that it's actually not about attack. It's about getting people on your side. Uh, I always say the idea is to not, uh, the idea is to build a thinner wall a narrower wall so you can push people off it on either side. It's not about building a broader wall. Like we, I don't want people on either side. I want you on or off. It's okay. Right. Either side. It's fine. So how do you, how do you help them to find that? Cause, and get over that piece around. I don't want to. It's a great question because with the agency, I get the same stuff. Like I'll try to yeah. get people to pick fights, you know, clients for their products and they'll be like, well, you know, we don't need to do that. We're good. So, so what I say to them is first of all, you got to make it clear. This is not about, trolling. This is not about picking fights with people, insulting their looks, insulting their politics. But what I'll do is I'll ask them this question. I'll say, what's a point of view held very, very commonly in your industry or your niche that is so commonly held that it's like gospel that you secretly or not so secretly can't stand, that you think is just dead wrong? And, and they'll hedge and I'll say, listen, if you don't have something this like this, you shouldn't be in business because if you aren't unhappy with the way things are being done in other parts of your niche, then what do you have to offer? And then they get it. They start to realize that it's not about just trolling people. Cause I think no. that's what people confuse it with. It's about taking a bold stand. And if you don't have that, you better retool what you're doing. That means that you didn't go into business to solve a problem. You went into business to, I don't know, sell people what they've already got and try to make money from it. And that doesn't usually go very far. But that's the key point here. The people who understand um, this 
understand that it doesn't work unless you're willing to be bold. And I'm going to yeah, give a final example and we'll close up this section. Yeah. Uh, um, so there was a guy who wrote a book about relationships, about, you know, romantic relationships. It didn't do very well. It didn't do very well at all. Um, he was married to another, uh, to a woman who was also a relationship person and her books did pretty good, but not, you know, not great. All of a sudden, and this is a New York published author. Um, and, and all of a sudden a marketing person who understood what we're talking about came along, who was having relationship problems, came along, read the book, thought the book was really good, but it had no hook, had no hook. So he, this marketing person went to this, per, to this um, author and said, let's rewrite the book, but we're going to use a phrase. And the phrase is, men are from Mars, yeah. women are from Venus. Great, yeah. Now, I will be clear in, in stating this. I've said it many times, and I've even said it to the author. I hate the book. I think it's a terrible message, personally, because it shoves men into one group and women into another group. It doesn't allow for any understanding of psychology it's so basic you know if your man is struggling let him go to his cave like right. oh my god how right. about slap him and say hey show up in the relationship dude <laughs> right. um, so right. that's certainly what my wife would do and that's good right but it was that understanding of at the time where men and women were starting to meld a little bit and it was like well let's let's go against that let's that's make right. them no let's make them very separate and and that was somebody who understood it. It doesn't matter whether it was right or wrong, but people became, it became a gospel. And that is what it, I'm loving about what our conversation is and about what you're teaching in the book and about what you do. It's about understanding that the people you're fighting against is something that is a gospel for them that you see through that you are kind of like the wizard who says it's an illusion. You're the Morpheus of your movement. That's such a great example. I never thought of it that way because that's true. That came out, I guess, in the 80s where we had yeah. just come off a moment like this moment where the trend was there's no inherent difference between men and women, the Alan Alda sensitive male, you know, that was the thing. So to then come out and say, no, you know, men, men are testosterone driven and brutish and this and that and women are gentle and blah, 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 whether it's true or not. Didn't matter. Lot, there were there was a group of people out there who wanted to believe that and didn't have a leader to rally exactly. around. And now they did. Exactly. Absolutely. So I'm loving this conversation. I hope you are too. Very much. And we're having so. a great time here. We're going to dive even deeper into all of this in a minute. We'll talk and we're actually going to go into um, what does it take to you know we'll expand this further and look at how does this end up in cults. And what is a cult? What is the illusion of what a cult is? And what is a cult really? Um, and and again, not we're going to look at it from a negative and a positive and how you can even consider it in your own life. So this is the end of part two of our delicious conversation with Michael F. Shine. He is, of course, the author of that way. Yep. He is the author of the Hype Handbook. Um, you can find it all over the place and you can certainly find him there. And again, Michael, please tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and the book and everything else. And then we'll come back for part three. I'm going to go back to uh, hypereads.com. That's where that, that is my um, book list where I make all kinds of recommendations of cool stuff on this topic. And it comes directly to me and I respond, you know, right back to you. So that's a great place to reach me.
Fabulous. Please do that. And we will be back for part three. We're just one click away. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious as we dig into what really is hype. One click away. See you soon.